the gradebook a tampa bay times podcast on florida education issues i'm reporter jeff solacek this past week florida governor ron DeSantis made a statement that caught a lot of people off guard it would set education funding on its ear if it were to become the way that the state operates he talked about how funding determines whether education is public or private we'll play that quote in a minute but i'll let you know that the criticism came immediately from the critics who said, oh my gosh, what he's saying is unconstitutional, illegal, can't do it. From the other side came all sorts of praise saying that he's bold and visionary and looking for not just funding schools and systems, but ideas and education generally. For some perspective, we've turned to national education finance expert Bruce Baker of Rutgers University. He'll talk with us about the governor's idea, whether there are pros and cons, whether it's legal or illegal, and how private schools actually do fit into the public school realm. We'll first play the quote from the governor's press conference in Orlando, and then we'll jump right into our conversation. For me, if the taxpayer is paying for the education, it's public education. It doesn't matter if you're going to the, the, the district-managed school that you're zoned for. It doesn't matter if you're going to a public magnet, a public charter. If you take a tax credit scholarship and go to a private school, or if you use an ESA for homeschool, to me, that is all the public's commitment to make sure that our kids have the best education. Yeah. Professor Baker, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, well, uh, thanks for having me. Now, we have a situation here where the governor has made a statement, essentially, that the dollar should follow the student, and if they're public dollars funding an education, it's a public education. Is that just too simplistic, or does that make sense? Well, um, there's a vast difference between publicly subsidized private providers and actual public providers, and you know whatever we want to call the former, you know if we want to call that public, that's perhaps a matter of semantics. But either way, it's important to clarify these differences to the public so they know what they're getting themselves into. And what are they getting themselves into here? I mean, we're paying for something that I think a lot of people would say is a good thing: getting low-income children the education that they deserve. Well, that that's. That's always the pitch. I mean, it's always about saving kids from failing schools, and we want to give them options. But the problem is that in many of these cases, we're not giving, we're not necessarily giving a, an array of good options, um, and we're also not, we're also not telling the public in the process what types of rights different constituents may be foregoing in this process. That the taxpayer rights are compromised here because they don't have the opportunity to see wh- where and how their tax dollars are spent because those private institutions aren't subject to the same disclosure requirements, open records requirements, open public meetings requirements because they're not staffed, run, organized, governed by public officials. They're not government entities, so they aren't subject to the same requirements. Students' rights are vastly different in the context of a private school or, for that matter, a privately managed uh, charter school where, you know, students and parents are signing on to enrollment contracts with provisions for dismissal and so on that are going to be viewed under private contract law. These kids don't necessarily have free speech rights 
the rights, for example, to not be compelled to uh, say the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, you had a Pledge of Allegiance issue down there just the other day. Um, so uh, speech rights, all the constitutional rights that protect us from you know, government interference um, with what we might do, uh, all bets are off on that when these kids are put into a private setting. Um, so to our federal statutory protections uh, for children with disabilities and, and so on. And there are similar issues when it comes to employee rights. So taxpayers, students, employees, parents have vastly different rights under a system where the provider is a private entity, even if that provider is receiving public financing. Is there not some way that the government could write the law to make some of those requirements happens. For instance, if you're in a private school, you must take the same tests and be subject to the same accountability requirements? Well, the, the government can certainly, and, and that's the only way it gets done, is if the, if, the, if the state statute explicitly identifies the accountability requirements, explicitly states that there shall be financial records compliance that is equivalent to that of public districts, that the that the governance boards of these schools will be subject to open meetings and open records laws, that students' rights, um, students' due process rights, students' speech rights, and so on would be equivalent to that of their constitutional protections in public schools. And quite honestly, I've, I've yet to see <laughs> a statute actually articulate these. Now, California did pass a statute protecting First Amendment rights of kids in, in charter schools, but in fact, against fierce lobbying from the Charter Schools Association. I don't see those kinds of details which are necessary for making this at least a more parallel system to the public system. I don't see those kinds of details making themselves into these statutes. Um, they haven't elsewhere, and I'd be really hard-pressed to believe they would in Florida. Now, if the legislature were to take this money and attach it to a student as opposed to the system, does it does it spread money too thin? That seems to be a big concern by a lot of people that you're trying to take the money for one system and put it into two or three separate systems. Right. Well, and that's something I've, I've actually written about a, a fair amount is that when we when we try to fund multiple systems in a common space, we run into inefficiencies. We do spread the money too thin in, in part because we... Uh, as you move students back and forth among systems, you have inefficient use of space and overhead and transportation systems um, that is not kind of manageable or controllable in any immediate way. Every dollar that goes into educating a kid isn't kind of flexibly associated with that child. We invested in, when we invested in kind of public education systems, we invested in their infrastructure. We invested in, in a variety of capital assets that aren't kind of a one-for-one per child basis. So four or five kids move, we can't cut entire sections of courses or close schools. Um, we, we carry inefficiencies as we go and we often, you know, then have the inefficiencies of investing new money to grow the growing system while carrying the costs of a, of a declining enrollment system. And you know, some argue, for example, you know, that these maybe these are short run transition costs that eventually reach a new equi equilibrium. But, you know, on charter schooling, for example, in like in New Jersey, we're 20 years into it, 21 years now. Um, the transition is still ongoing. I mean, these aren't short run inefficiencies um, and they are substantial additional kind of ongoing costs you know, to running multiple systems in a common space. Like, for example, the additional transportation costs of running the New Orleans model of moving kids all over the city. Um, that's not going away because it's an embedded feature of the model. Now, after 
Governor DeSantis announced his idea and said, it's public money, so it's public education. Betsy DeVos came out and tweeted right away, I agree with you. How much of this is becoming a national debate and and how much of this has been debated before or is it new? Well, this is this is a long time. It's a long time running. And, and it's uh, the whole publicness declaration has not typically been applied to to voucher programs, but it's been a mantra of charter schooling, even while case law has mounted to the contrary. The case law that basically makes the charter schools that are privately managed and in receipt of public financing much more analogous to these voucher-receiving private schools than to their public school counterparts. So pub- charter schools will often you know, make it a point to say public charter schools or charter schools are public schools like any others. I've not I – mean, it seems to be relatively new to stick that on voucher programs where it's been more clearly acknowledged in the past that this is a public subsidy to a private entity. And we don't – for example, we don't talk about, you know, every, is every and any doctor's office or hospital in Florida that might be in receipt of Medi- Medicaid or Medicare payment, are those all public? Is the corner market that takes SNAP, you know, is that public because it's taking public assistance? This seems to be more of a stretch than usual. Um, kind of new, but it's been the mantra of the charter sector, and it's it's made charter expansion more politically palatable than voucher expansion for the past decade and a half. But now we're seeing the voucher expansion. So you know, maybe they're trying to tap into some of the same political sentiments. If we call it public, people will think more favorably of it. Um, Although it's weird because the whole premise is that, you know, you're trying to move to a system that's not public because people are supposed to think disfavorably of that which is public. (laughs) You make a good point. Uh, What happens if this gets to the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court rules one way? Is there still a federal level appeal? Because I know that this has been battled back and forth in state courts, but I didn't know if there's like a national overlay onto that. Well, not not so much. I mean, here here you're talking about. I, I believe the way it's been challenged in the past. What was it, Bush v. Holmes in in Florida a while back, where where it was about the the education article of the Constitution, which says that that the um, that you know the, the uniformity clause pertains to the the provision of a essentially uniformly available public system of schools. And to have dual systems violates, in and of itself, violates uniformity, much like, you know, having black schools and white schools in and of itself could not be equal in kind of Brown v. Board. So it's kind of analogous. The, the, the one place where federal law has stepped in to accept the provision of vouchers is around the issue of whether or not having a voucher system that provided money to religious schools was violative of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And and the, that was in a, the Zellman case in Ohio where the court found that, that no, it's, you know, if this is a system of individual choices where the program, the voucher program's design itself is not intended to promote or advance religion, that's, that's not a problem. An extension of that comes from a case about a year ago um, in this uh, Trinity Lutheran, um, it was a, a church with a playground um, in in, uh, in Missouri that had applied for grant funding through a state program. Um, and that state um, program 
was generally available to support, you know, I guess, putting this like rubber tire surface on playgrounds, um, but they denied the grant to the church on the basis that it was a religious institution because they have a constitutional, they have a Blaine Amendment in the Missouri Constitution that prohibits the use of public funding for religious institutions. So to extend this, you know, let, let's say that let's say that they get past the Bush v. Holmes argument and they can have a voucher system. Um, and they're free and clear on having that go to religious schools because of the Zellman, the federal court decision in Ohio in 01, 02, something like that. Um, they could not discriminate on the basis of religion or religious affiliation in terms of which schools can receive vouchers, if any schools can receive vouchers in, in Florida. But that's really the first question. It's getting around their own uniformity, uniform systems clause and the Bush v. Holmes precedent. So, so that's a kind of convoluted. No, it makes a lot of sense because that's exactly what Florida has been looking at as this growth and change. And now we have a whole new Supreme Court, the three more liberal justices retired all at once and three wow. new conservative justices were appointed on some of the first days in the new governor's term. So it's, it's a really big debate. And I guess we're all waiting to see how it plays out and if it actually gets to the court's yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how they how they reason it, um, and and whether or not you know additional statutory protections are required. It might be kind of even kind of wink wink suge suggested by the court in accepting this system that certain other protections would be required to ensure uniformity. Um, it's kind of like you know provisions for measuring separate but equal in the Plessy era. So so now as we move forward with this, it looks like the debate is going to take place quickly. I watched a House committee today where they talked about school choice and all they did basically was talk about the outrage of not having enough scholarships to provide everybody who wants one to go wherever they want. Uh, is there something that we should be watching for? I mean, just in terms of pure finance and pure policy to make sure that things are done properly at least? Well, again, I, I think and from a policy perspective, you know, what, what I'd, you know, love to see is I, I'd like to see some debate and consideration of, you know, the, again, the protection of taxpayer rights, disclosure, you know, access, um, protection, even on the curriculum and standardization side. I mean, we had, what was it, um, so Rebecca Klein in HuffPo, who did a really interesting piece on the types of curricula being used by by uh, private religious schools, um, many of which were in Florida. Yep. Um, so, yeah, some some you know discussion of measurement and accountability, public access and disclosure, you know, for taxpayer rights, you know, some guarantee of, of student rights, uh, both under kind of special education laws, disability laws, as well as knowing that these kids are likely to have some, you know, constitutional protections, due process when it comes to whether or not they would be retained or dismissed, not that they can just be kind of tossed out of hand for, you know, not marching in line or, stating that the school oath on demand to whatever personnel um, and, and that there would be, you know, again, an extension of that is that there's some kind of employee rights as well as em, you know, employee qualifications um, that make this system 
part, you know, if the court accepts it, you know, something that ensures that this system really is part of a uniform system. It's still going to be a more dispersed and less efficient system, um, but everything can be uniformly less efficient, I guess, in, in that way. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you talking with me about this. We're at the beginning of our of our debate here in Florida, and so I might call on you again to talk again as we move forward and get more details. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you're welcome. That's the end of our conversation and the end of our podcast. If you'd like to participate in this conversation, please go to our Facebook page where this post will be and add your comments there. It's Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. For the latest in Florida education breaking news, go to our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. Thank you again for listening to these podcasts, and I hope you're subscribing. Uh, Share it with your friends, and you know you can find it on iTunes and Google. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. Thanks again for listening.